This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There have been many stories looking at the issues surrounding the underfunding of municipality and state pension plans. Moody's Investors Service estimates estimates the entirety of pension funds are $4 trillion underfunded, and that is equal currently to the economy of Germany. It's also about one-fifth of the current national debt in the United States. It's a significant concern for government employees that a fully funded retirement may not be there for them at a time when the rates for older Americans declaring bankruptcy is on the rise. So where does this leave public employees as they plan for retirement? We ask our guests, Olivia Mitchell, Executive Director of the Pension Research Center and Director of the Center on Pensions and Retirement Research here at the Wharton School. She is also a professor of insurance and risk management, as well as business economics and policy. And joining us on the phone, Leora Friedberg, who's an associate professor of economics and public policy at the University of Virginia's Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Olivia, great seeing you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you. Leora, great to have you with us today. Thank you. We've talked about this so many times, but again, this is an issue which feels like it it continues to not get enough attention, that we have hundreds of thousands of potential people that are going to be affected by this. Olivia? Well, it's certainly the case that every year that ticks by leads to more red ink and more uh, concern because the state and local plans across the country have clearly not done what they should have done to contribute the right amounts, to invest their assets in their pension plans carefully and thoughtfully. And then us uh, older folks are living longer and needing more medical care, needing longer retirement benefits. So it's a it's a series of challenges, which, frankly, nobody much is paying attention to. We are the the the, the life issues, which uh, Olivia bring up living longer, mm-hmm. needing more medical care. Obviously, that's part of what we see in our culture right now. But and, and maybe, you know, that's not a changeable asset. But what could have been changeable is how some of these governments kind of plan these things out. Well, yeah, I think it ends up getting kind of built into the system. There there aren't strong incentives for the governments to actually take care of this decades before it becomes a problem, and so then it becomes a problem uh, after years of underfunding, and then t- some combination of taxpayers and state and local government workers bear the cost of that. And so we've already seen that going on for the last 10 years. It, it is seemingly the tax part of this the one area that I think that, that it infuriates people at times, Leora, is the fact that seemingly it feels like if there's not enough pension there to be handled, the one way that seemingly is, is a fix is to be able to tax the consumer a little bit more. Taxing the, yeah, increasing taxes or cutting other spending becomes part of the part of the solution. Blaming state and local workers becomes part of it, too. Politically, that ends up being easier than um, than, than dealing with the funding. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, joined in studio by Olivia Mitchell of the Wharton School and Leora Friedberg of the University of Virginia. Your comments are welcome, again, at 844-942-7866. Some of the the statistics, uh, Olivia, that we're seeing right now in terms of 
uh, states and how underfunded they are. New Jersey is one. I've seen Kentucky referred to. Rhode Island is another one. Illinois. Il- Illinois as well. I, I mean, are there any s- states out there that are doing a halfway decent job at this point? Well, overall, if you use the numbers that the states and municipalities report, they say they're 72 percent funded. In other words, it's a long shot and far away from 100 percent, which is where I would like my pension plan funded. (laughs) But unfortunately, states and municipalities are allowed to use the actuarial assumptions that they feel like it without any uh, oversight from the federal government. And it's been estimated that their actual funding rate is closer to about 45% if you take into account the proper actuarial assumptions. What I did was I took this $5 trillion number that's been given out as the possible amount of underfunding, and I said if you were to divide that by about the U.S. workforce, 158 million workers, all yeah. told, right? That's about an obligation of $32,000 per worker. Not yeah. just public sector workers, but all workers. Yeah. Obviously, it would be a lot more if you were to ask just public sector to workers to pay for it. And so that gives you a concrete sense of the shortfall that we're facing. A lot of people don't have $32,000 for their own retirement, much less to pay for state and local workers. Leora? Yeah, and, and um, besides that that huge overhang of pension obligations, many states also face health insurance obligations that they're not funding at all. Uh, and um, that that really magnifies the problem in about half the states. So, if you're looking at the the people that are going to feel this the most, Leora, the 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 employees, the the state workers, the county workers, how do they need to adjust to this obviously changing uh, kind of uh, platform that we're seeing with uh, with pensions at this point? I think they need to be aware that uh, the benefits that they've been uh, expecting may not be there, and it depends on the state how how tight those legal obligations are. In some states, it's written into the Constitution, in the state constitutions. In other states, it's not, and it's not legally protected by the federal government in any way, as private sector pensions are. And so sometimes benefits are cut. Cost of living adjustments are postponed. The length of time you need to qualify for benefits is extended. Uh, the other major adjustment that states are making is to start requiring employees to, to contribute themselves as well. And some states, for example, in Virginia, where I live, have moved to hybrid pensions for new employees that include a, a defined contribution apo- a component, much like a 401k plan. I would only add that um, if if we were just to try to fund the state and local plans going forward, um, that would be expensive. But if we're also going to try to fund the unfunded liability from the past, this could take easily 50 percent of a state or a city's total revenue, leaving yeah. precious little for police, firefighters, filling the potholes and so on. Well, and I would also think that is it not a possibility, Leora, because if we know that these pensions are going to be underfunded, if it's going to require more for these employees, we have the potential of seeing some of these employees getting to their whatever that that years is that they have to reach to get that pension and getting out quicker and not vesting it even farther and staying in that position longer. And then that becomes an issue of employment and people being able to fill a lot of these jobs. 
Yeah, I think it is undercutting the competitiveness of of the public sector as a place of employment. It's it was already the case that pay was often lower for comparable jobs, especially for high skill workers. Uh, in the public sector and state and local government. Uh, and the promise of the pension benefit was supposed to make up for that. And if that's, that promise is no longer being fulfilled, then talented people will certainly go elsewhere. Which obviously then plays going back into all of those services, Olivia, that you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago. Well, in fact, some states and cities have already turned to outsourcing. These used to be public services. So, for example, the prison system has been almost entirely privatized, if you will. Um, In many cities, the um, emergency services are now privatized. And part of the reason is that those are usually less costly employees, and they don't typically have these big pension plans that are waiting for them at the end. So cities and states are already aware of this. But quite frankly, the bigger issue is the so-called hidden borrowing problem, that when folks hired teachers and firefighters and so forth 30 years ago, they didn't pay them the full amount that would make their their uh, salaries as well as their pensions robust. Yeah. Instead, they underfunded the plans, leaving today's taxpayers to pay for services that were rendered 30 years ago. Did they, did they believe that they were going to be able to make up the lag at some point down the road to be able to get that funding level higher, and that's why they underfunded when they did? That's a complicated question because it seems like there's enough blame to sure. appoint yeah. to everyone. Yeah. Typically, the actuarial assumptions that were used were very optimistic. They thought that people would die sooner. That's what actuaries yeah. think is optimistic, that um, investment <laughs> returns would be much higher than anticipated, and that the pension funds could take pretty risky investments, um, private equity, hedge funds, infrastructure, and so forth, and make a lot of money better than what you could do in the market. And all of those different approaches proved wrong, especially after the financial crisis where yeah. the state and local pensions lost 35%, 40% of their money. Now, it's true that things have been doing a little bit better in terms of their investments, but still the fundamental flaw is that over the years, um, employees were offered a future benefit which was not properly collateralized. Go ahead, Lior. Yeah, and so now, you know, where does that discipline come from? Um, maybe it comes from bondholders because they because when state and local governments issue bonds, uh, then the bondholders have to evaluate their their um, ability to repay those bonds. And so there was certainly some bond market adjustment in the last ten years as well in recognition of these obligations, uh, but. In some places, some cities um, have been going into bankruptcy, as we saw with Detroit and as we saw with some California cities. Um, and then the the workers' pensions can become very vulnerable in those situations. You mentioned uh, a moment ago about uh, some states starting to go to kind of a, a 401k philosophy mm-hmm. of having employees contribute. How much, I mean, what, is it similar to a 401k that it is a match uh, whatever that percentage is, or do employees, are they contributing 25%, 50%? Uh, um, it, it varies from state to state. It's not often a match. It's it's often more a required contribution now right. from the employees. Right. That's what's happened in Virginia, that employees have to put in um, 5% of their pay now. 
Um, and uh, but otherwise, it does look like a private sector plan. And there there are some advantages to that because it makes workers more aware of their own saving and and familiarizes them with investment in the stock market. But we know from from the history of the private sector moving away from from defined benefit plans towards 401ks that voluntary contributions often fall well below what workers need to to replace their income in retirement. Olivia? Yeah, I think the place to start really is to begin with transparency. Um, The federal government, through the 1974 Employee Retirement Income Security Act, required corporate plans to report their future promises, to set aside money uh, in order to be able to meet those promises. Now, because of our uh, sort of arm's length relationship between states and the federal government, um, the feds have no power over the states to report their liabilities and their assets and do everything um, in a similar set of ways. But I still think that uh, there was actually a bill proposed back in 2011 uh, requiring transparency, not requiring full funding, but at least giving uh, shareholders, um, taxpayers, bondholders, and so forth, the fundamental knowledge that's needed to decide how much at risk they are. And then after that, assumptions across plans. Yes. After that, it'll be up to each taxpayer and each stakeholder to figure out what to do. There was an interesting study that just came out a couple days ago, um, arguing that uh, ultimately property holders, that is homeowners, business uh, operators and so forth, will end up either directly or indirectly paying that unfunded liability. Why? Hmm. Because they called it a stealth tax. They said 20% of your property value is already going to be liable to be covering these state and local short pension wow. shortfalls. And so, yeah, you can sell and move out of Chicago or Detroit or what have you, but there's already the capitalization of that underfunding in the value of your house. Which also would, would make it, I would think, a little bit harder for people to want to do the sale because you know you're getting that 20% haircut right Absolutely. off the top. And you might not want to buy a property in a city such as Philadelphia, for example, which claims yeah. to be 40% funded, but I think is more like 25% funded <laughs> if you do the numbers right. Well, but, but uh, Liara, one of the the examples I gave before is the state of New Jersey. And I saw a, an article that said that New Jersey is so underfunded at this point that they have the possibility of being out of funds in a little over a decade at this point, unless something significantly changes. And that's something totally different, I, I think, to have... It's one thing to have, you know, pensions underfunded and you may be able to get 50% of what you probably should. When you're talking about something like insolvency, that's that's a much different ballpark. Yeah, and it and then it comes down to constitutional issues like I said some state constitutions protect pension benefits explicitly, others don't. And so so like Olivia said that transparency is missing right now in understanding where you live and what those obligations are. I do research on state and local pensions, and I didn't even realize until about 10 years ago that the city of Charlottesville, where I live, operates its own pension fund for its for its police and and not for the teachers, but for the police and the and the city workers. And how do they do in terms of operating it? Well, there's not much information about it, so it's hard to know. Which goes back to the transparency issue yeah. that Olivia was talking about. And I'd be happier if they 
if the city of Charlottesville didn't have to do this very complicated financial operation of running a pension fund. It's not that we have a lot, you know, that that local government has that expertise. Does because some of these issues are so significantly or and you mentioned, uh, you know, some of the cities that, that you rattled off before, do the citizens themselves need to start to ask the questions of, of how they are doing this? Not just the employees of the fire departments, of the police departments, the teachers, but the entire community need to start asking these questions. Absolutely. So, so that you that's, don't have this economic uh, economic crater that you're falling that's, into. That's where the discipline can come from, because politicians otherwise have short time horizons. And, and if they can pass the buck on later on, then they're going to. Olivia? Often. Yeah, I would say just because, you know, this is far too cheerful a conversation, that we have to understand that this exact problem, but multiplied several times over, also happens at the federal level. That the yeah. U.S. Social Security yeah. system is sure. within, you know, maybe 12 to 15 years of running short of money. And instead of $32,000, if you divided the state and local underfunding by every worker, in the Social Security case, it's about $171,000. That would be each of our worker as employee uh, obligation if we were to try to fill the hole with Social Security. So this is starting to get into some real money. And I think the problem that we're facing is basically one of um, political non-transparency and also population. Population aging. You can yeah. keep running unfunded or underfunded plans as long as you have a growing workforce. Our workforce, for better or for worse, is not go- growing as quickly as it should be or could be potentially. Our productivity is not what it could be. And what it means is we're going to be supporting more and more retirees on fewer and fewer workers. And that gets very expensive quickly. But how much can, can uh, an impact come from even employees kicking in 5%? Towards their uh, towards their uh, the, their overall pension. I mean, it would probably be a little bit uh, of a of a support, but it's certainly when we're talking trillions of dollars, it's not going to make that significant of an impact, is it? Well, if if you take as an assumption that future expected returns are going to be low, and most yeah. economists are projecting that we're not going to have the the heyday stock markets of the last 40 years. So if you take that as an assumption, you have to estimate that you basically have to save about 25% of each paycheck from age 20 onward to be able to replace half of your income in retirement. And that's just half. Hoping that there's something like Social Security or a company plan for the other half. So 25% of your your income is the number we should be starting with, not five. Leora? Yeah, and so, you know, you were talking about uh, awareness and, and voters being aware, but what really has to happen is individuals recognizing their own future financial needs and thinking about their own retirement and starting early because when you're if you start doing that when you're 25 or 30 then it becomes much easier than if you start when you're 45 or 50. You're listening to Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, joined by Olivia Mitchell uh, of the Wharton School and Leora Friedberg of the University of Virginia. Your comments are welcome. Again, at 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132. Or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. The simplest scenario, I think, is is that our government 
has to be able to be more aware of of being able to to tackle this problem in a greater fashion. But because of the fact that, that revenues are down and and the tax issue is obviously something that, that most people don't want to deal with, the state and local governments are also kind of caught in between on this as well, correct? Well, the big issue, of course, I think is about states because um, I'm not a lawyer, but legal friends of mine, experts uh, here at Penn, including David Skeel, have opined that there really is no way for states to file for bankruptcy right now. And so as a consequence, there's a lack of clarity about what actually would happen if, hypothetically, the state of Illinois or even California would have to go bust. Um, In the case of cities, of course, they can and do go bust. There was an interesting article yesterday or the day before about the mayor of Chicago, um, Emmanuel, Rahm Emanuel, Emanuel, saying that he is going to try to confront the unfunded pension system by selling what they call pension obligation bonds. So the notion is interest rates are still pretty low, so they would sell billions of dollars of bonds to the public. Take that cash, put it in the pension fund, and invest it in the stock market, yeah, right. hoping to hoping to arbitrage that situation. I think that pension obligation bonds are a misguided and very risky approach. Right. And this is certainly no way to try to fix, quote unquote, the pension system. Why specifically? I mean, because obviously we've seen, for the most part, a run up of the stock market, but we have seen it, it declines and significant declines at times as well. Well, and and so the idea is that if, you know, why should I, a taxpayer, lend money to the government? Why shouldn't I just give all of my money to the government to invest in the stock market if it's such a great idea? In fact, it's extremely risky. As we've seen, the stock market can lose 35, 40 percent. And perhaps if I lived to be a thousand years old, you know, in that long run, we'd it, we'd be able to make the money back. But in my lifetime, I'm not sure I would. So I just think that's a very misguided approach. Yeah, the, the, only way, the, the only way to, to get a higher expected return is to take on more risk. Um, you know, there's no magic investments that states can make here to to recoup the money. Um, so and and so just like we saw with the financial crisis, that high risk means that at some points there's going to there are going to be big declines and and then they won't be able to pay their bills. The other problem, I think, with bonds is just like we've been talking about, it pushes the problem off to the future. And then it makes it harder to understand what the future obligations are. Do you, do, you, do you have any good news for state and local employees at this point, Leora, because of how deep some of these I can imagine what it's like in the state of Illinois right now because of the fact that that, that pension in that state is so underfunded at this point. I think the best thing any of us can do is just to be well informed and understand the the funding problems and not count on that money. So take responsibility for for funding your retirement. Olivia? I see that the uh, recent events in Puerto Rico are a bellwether for some of the yeah. states. I mean, of course, Puerto Rico is not a state, yeah. but it did file for bankruptcy. And the board that's trying to get the 
the entity back on its feet again, had proposed a 10% pension cut. There actually is no money in the pension fund in Puerto Rico right now. So 10% was kind of a generous (laughs) outcome, and it was rejected by the governor. So that's still in play. It's still being debated. But I think that's a good example of things to come. But you're probably going to see, and and I mentioned this to you before we went on the air, a friend of mine used to work for the New Jersey Department of Transportation, had his, you know, his 30-year run for the for the state working for them. Uh, he now a- actually is working a second job. He lives up in Maine, lower cost of income uh, of, of living up there, but he's working a second job because he knows that the pension that he's getting from the state of New Jersey is not going to be something that he can count on long-term at this point, Olivia. And this is particularly true for the 25% of state and local workers who are not covered by Social Security. Even though I did say Social Security is running into arrears, there will be enough to pay about three-quarters of those benefits. And yet a quarter of state and local workers are not, not even in Social Security. So if their pension goes south, they're in really big trouble. Yeah. Well, you are? That's right. Um, the the state and local the ones who are not in social security are supposed to have benefits that are higher to make up for it. But research shows that that has not kept kept pace. So great having you joining us today, Leora. Thank you for your time. Oh, you're you're very welcome. Thank you, Olivia. Great seeing you again. My Thanks pleasure. for coming Thank in. You. Olivia Mitchell from here at the Wharton School. Leora Friedberg from the University of Virginia. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.